Hi, and welcome to the Boat Princess podcast. My name is Nikki Vo, and I'm your host. I am a boat owner, a marina owner, a director on the Marina Industries Association, and a huge advocate for boating. In this series, I'm sharing the stories from every nook of the boating industry with the intention of encouraging more women to join me and for more women to get behind the helm too. I want to share the experience and opportunities of boating, of the boating industry, and I want you to join me as I bring the conversations and answer all the questions you've had. Boating is not just for the glamorous and rich and famous. It's full of beautiful and interesting people making the most of our natural environment and getting out there, enjoying the waterways. So let's set off the lines, take over the helm and escape to the world of boating. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Boat Princess podcast. I am here with Nicole Watts. Now, Nicole is a director at New South Wales Transport Maritime. Both. Both. Yep. So good. Um, And I want to talk to her because she's got an amazing career that we're going to explore with her. Um, But let's start with a really cool thing. You've got three letters after your name, which not all of us have, and that is PSM. Tell me about that, Nicole. Yeah, look, thanks for having me, Nikki. And yeah, look, the PSM is um, for a public service medal that I was awarded in the 2016 Queen's Honours Award. So I, at the time, was working for Service New South Wales. I was part of the startup of that. Um, and it was some of the work we did in that space. So that was transitioning roads and maritime services over to those service centres and making it more digital, customer-centric. So yeah, quite exciting. I had to practice my curtsy and, and go into government house and uh, yeah, definitely a career highlight. Oh, that's amazing. Um, I did. I have to say as a consumer, I really noticed a difference from RMS to Service New South Wales. You suddenly became as if you weren't a government operation, that you were a, a, a corporate operation that, that focused entirely on the customer. Um, how did you make that transition happen? Yeah, look, I'm really pleased you noticed that because that was very intentional. So we deliberately took the teams out. Um, I remember going and sitting at the Four Seasons with a bunch of staff, management staff. Um, We had a number of consumer groups that we consulted and it was all about let's tear down the glass walls. And I don't know if you remember in Roads and Maritime Service, the staff were behind the glass. I mean, now probably pre-COVID it wasn't a bad (laughs) idea, but at the time... We went, no, we want to actually engage and how do we make it a better experience because every single person you would speak to would dread it, go, oh, I've got to go, you know, spend 40 minutes or an hour lining up. So it was all about let's have a concierge, someone who greets you, works out what you want and how you can best get that outcome. Let's provide a digital option. You know, obviously now with everything moving online, I was part of the initial stream that was setting up digital licensing and that works ongoing. So I think it was really about making it customer-centric and giving the people of New South Wales what they want. You know, when you think about it, Service New South Wales every single citizen of New South Wales is a customer. Mm. So, and it's our taxpayers' money going into it. So really looking back, it was a no brainer. Um, But yeah, that's definitely some work I'm probably the most proud of. And you're still seeing the benefits. And as a customer going in, it's just such a better experience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so much better. Um, Because yeah, yeah, 
government customers are kind of a guaranteed customer, right? They they have Absolutely. to do these things. We have to register our car. We have to get our license. We have to get our boat license, um, and we have to go to those offices to do that. So yeah, to to turn that around from a oh we know you've got to come in and do it anyway to a, a well let's look after you was yeah it was amazing transition. Well done. No, thank you. And look, I can't yeah. take all the credit, but certainly yeah worthwhile being a part of and something I'm still to this day really proud of. Yeah. So let's go back to your uh, your childhood. Mm. You, I look at your career on LinkedIn, very good LinkedIn, by the way, <laughs> um, and um, you have, to me, performed the best you possibly can in every role that you've done. So that has in turn promoted you to a very high level. Um, where do you think that drive, that passion, that, um, work ethic comes from? Yeah, look, I think I can answer that really easily because I think that would definitely come from my parents and, and mostly my mother, you know, from a very early age, she instilled that sense of, you know, work hard, apply yourself. If you're going to do something, don't do it half-heartedly. Um, and that really resonated, you know. She was a business bank manager um, and I saw her work exceptionally hard throughout her life. We had a few tough times financially and at one point I think she had, you know, two, three additional jobs outside of her job supporting our family. Um, and I think I noticed that and I, I took it on board. I remember at uni I was desperate to buy a house, which is a bit weird I know <laughs> as a uni <laughs> student. And I think I had five jobs. So I wow. was, yeah, I was waitressing tables, wrapping fish and chips. I had a part-time job at Priceline. I was babysitting. Um, I was just so determined. And I pretty much finished uni and, and bought the tiny one-bedroom apartment. But yeah, I did that, I think, very early 20s. Um, so yeah, I, I would say it probably comes from definitely my parents and the way I was brought up. It was always, you know, work hard, apply yourself, make something of yourself. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, I say that now I have two young boys, 18 months and four. And with my four-year-old, I'm already saying that, you know, the other day he came home and he said, I want to be a builder. And I went, brilliant. I said, be a builder. That's great. But you know, you could even be a developer and then you can decide what you want to build. And it's not that there's anything wrong with being a builder, but just opening his mind to, to think big, you yes. know, even at four. And I'm sure, you know, next week he'll want to be a, you know, spaceman, Fireman. Or, you know, astronaut or something. But <laughs> I think just at an early, an early age, it's so important to, to have those chats and encourage people to think big. Yeah, and not know. limit themselves. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting that you've um, spent some time working in, in hospitality. I always say to my, because I've got uni students that work at our bistro, at Waterside Bistro at Bob and Head, yeah. and I say to them, don't ever underestimate what you learn working in hospitality yeah. because it uh, it's a stage and it's, um, it's somewhere you've got to perform and it, it's uh, you learn so much about people. And how 100%. to deal with them and all those sorts of things. So I, I did a lot of hospitality work in my early career, and I think it's something um, nobody should ever miss out on doing. To be honest, completely agree. It yeah. is such a good training ground, and it really put me in good stead. It's funny, you know. I've done, you know, university degree, and I look at, you know, I've done a graduate certificate. I'm just about to embark on an executive master in public admin. 
But taking all that education aside, some of the best lessons I've ever learned have been on the job in those exact roles you're talking about, hospitality, retail, and they're things I still use today, Yeah, you know. Yeah. So let's talk about that university. What did you do at university and where? So I started off in international business. So that was Griffith University on the Gold Coast. I grew up on the Gold Coast. Uh, And then I changed to business and communication. So that was my original degree. Um, But I've always, you know, I've been focused on kind of continually improving myself. So I've gone over to Harvard and done um, an executive course there. And that was breakthrough service. And again, just learning to apply those principles. Um, I did a graduate certificate in public policy and public administration. Um, And as I say, I'm now doing an executive master's as well. And I think, you know, even beyond that, at some point, I wouldn't mind doing a law degree, not because I, I want to practice law, but I just have an interest. And I think, you know, that sort of um, desire to learn, it never goes for me anyway. And again, I encourage others to do that. Keep your mind active for me. I just love learning. Mm-hmm. And it's hard, right? We're all busy working and, you know, many of your listeners will be parents as well. Sometimes it's hard to find the time to read a book or to carve out time for yourself. I find when I commit myself to study, it kind of allows me to feel a little less guilty about doing something for me as well. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. And tell me about that Harvard Harvard process. Is is that something anybody can do or how did how did that come about? Yeah, so you there is a um I think a selection process, but it was fairly easy to get into and it's not you don't have to submit prior grades or anything like that. They're really looking for executives um who are focused on bettering themselves and I would highly encourage anyone if they've got the opportunity to do that to do so because you go um the course I did it was a, just a week course but you're with a cohort from all around the world so the network you know many of those people I'm still in contact with today Um, and also you do case studies on different businesses and you know you spend prior to the course um, some time doing research and presenting papers and then you're having a discussion and they go, oh, and we've actually got the CEO here today. And so you go, wow, and you actually get to engage and then present to real people who've actually lived that experience. I just found it phenomenal. Yeah. I'd love to go back and that's something I wouldn't rule out either. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's not bad on the CV, is it? No, look, <laughs> I'm sure it helps. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you started your career if I'm correct, with well after those all those jobs you did yep. at uni and so on and so forth, um, with Carnival. Yeah, and that was actually a bit of a, a whim, to be honest, because I finished uni and I went, where do I start? What do I want to do? Um, and I don't know, I'd always wanted to travel and I had a friend who went and ran away and worked on cruise ships and I thought, oh, that sounds great. So I applied and yeah, I started off in sales. So literally as the onboard sales manager, so selling cruises to people already traveling, it was an amazing, amazing opportunity. Um, You know, you would work seven days a week, but I would say every night was like a Friday night. Uh, Every morning, unfortunately, it was like a Monday morning, but uh, you know, every second, third day, you'd be in a different country. I did a lot of uh, European seasons and a couple of world cruises as well. And really I was paid to see the world and grew my career whilst I was there I became the commercial manager so again that was looking after sort of all the onboard concessions the casinos the shops 
but again, built a great network um, and just, you know, you're working with so many different cultures, different people. Again, you talk about hospitality being a good stomping ground and that customer service where well, you're living with your customers. Um, yeah. And I think I've, I learned so much from that as well. Um, so, yeah, look, I did that for, for a few years. And um, to be honest, I probably could have done it forever. It was only that I went, oh, I probably should at some point settle down and meet someone. And, you know, you, you do miss out on sort of birthdays and special events back home. So I, I decided to sort of end it. But to be honest, I'm envious. I still have friends in the industry and, you know, I'll be in the office and they're on the Greek islands or somewhere and you go, oh, Maybe I should have stayed. Uh, but no, it was a great start. Really, really lucky to have that opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Cruises are um, they're quite incredible, aren't they? They mm. attract so many different types of people. Definitely. And having been on one myself, it's, it's kind of like a demographic exper- uh, um, experiment, you know. <laughs> there's, there's some people that head towards the casino. There's others that always go to the buffet and never go to the fine dining and vice versa. And it's, yeah, it's a fascinating, fascinating world to work in, I can imagine. Yep. Yeah, yeah. really, really was. And look, I I spent, you know, uh, eight, nearly nine years in the UK. Off the back of that, I met Connections. I worked at Harrods. I did a few things, to be honest. I think looking back in my early 20s, I sort of just went with the different opportunities that were presented and I probably didn't have a path, which is very unlike me. Yeah. Um, but I would not change it because I think that those skills and the connections have landed me ultimately where I am today. But it's interesting looking back, you know, I didn't sit down in school or even in uni and go, I'm going to go and work on a cruise ship. Yeah. Kind of just happened. Um, but I look back and go, thank goodness I did. Yeah. You know. Yeah. You sound like a person which I always advocate for, listen for opportunities that come your way. Some people are sort of closed-eared to to what might be in front of them in a conversation, which could actually be an amazing opportunity for them. Absolutely. But if we listen for them, we can often, you know, luck that some people refer to isn't necessarily the case. Often it's, I heard that opportunity, I took the risk, I went for it. Um, And you sound like you've done a lot of that in your life. Yeah, I think so. And you know what, I think you're absolutely right. I think you know, for all intents and purposes, it's great to have a plan in life, but some of the best opportunities that will come your way won't be on your plan. And I think you're right, being open to that. When I look at, you know, many of the people I look up to, um, they've also been very much like that, you know. Um, And I think even looking at, you know, some of the more famous people out there who are very, very successful, they've done similar. Some of them didn't know what they wanted to do, even in their 40s, their 50s, and they've been really open to that. So, yeah, I think it's a really interesting theme to explore. Yeah. So after Carnival, what happened then? I think, look, I had some time working in Harrods. Like, and I kind of put, you know, my main careers on LinkedIn, but I did a few things. Eventually I came back to Sydney. Um, my family were on the Gold Coast, but I'd spent some time in London. And I went, oh, Gold Coast just feels a bit small. So I moved to Sydney. And, of course, I rented a ridiculously expensive apartment right on Kent Street, which was so not practical. (laughs) Nice spot. You realise, you know, even things like shopping, you can't just pull up at Woolworth. So, anyway, it was fun. And um, interestingly enough, I thought I'd dated a few uh, people in the UK and not had a great deal of success. I I just want to meet a nice Australian man, settle down. Um, and focus on career and and what that looks like. And I decided by that point I was ready to get out of the cruise ship industry. Um, 
look, fast forward, probably I decided to go into government. That was probably service in South Wales was my next big thing once I came. And by that point I was, yeah, 29, 30, I think early 30s. Um, and I think at the same time I met my now husband, um, who, would you believe, is English. So I still go back to London, <laughs> UK every year. Nice. Um, wouldn't change it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that was the time where I really went, what do I want to mm-hmm. do? And I spent, you know, three and a half years with Service in South Wales, really, really enjoyed it, really felt like the work was meaningful. And what I mean by that is, you know, I often – I realise I'm not a neurosurgeon, I'm not curing cancer. And at times it can be hard to find value or see the importance. But Service in South Wales was the first role I had where I felt like it was having an impact, even if it was saving people a couple of hours. You know, we used to to sort of say, you have people from birth to death, you're issuing birth certificates, you're issuing the death certificate. Um, You would also see people at the hardest points in their lives. So if you could stream on that and make it easier, it felt meaningful. So I really enjoyed that. But during that time, again, I spent a lot of time at Apple and working with Apple because I love their service model. I love the technology. And again, being open to networks, I got approached a couple of times to go and work for Apple. And I said no the first two times. And the third time I thought, oh, if I say no now, they're probably not going to ask again. Yeah. And even though I could have stayed at Service New South Wales, I went, what have I got to lose? So I actually went and worked for Apple in a, a senior manager role. Um, and that was really, really interesting, you know, involved with new store openings, leading the retail teams. Um, you know, you had a lot to do with the US, the, the head office in Singapore. I really, really enjoyed it. But I must admit, probably sort of halfway through I realized with Apple and it's phenomenal but you really are very small part of this huge beast Um, and everything is given to you so there's not a lot of room at the level in Australia anyway that I was at to innovate or to really make a difference those sort of decisions were made in Cupertino Um, and I don't know I whilst I enjoyed it I went oh I just don't know that this is me long term. I want something a little bit more and it felt a bit small, which sounds crazy, I know, when you talk Apple. Because <laughs> your role there wasn't small, was and, it? And, and, it, and it wasn't, no. but I just felt like, you know, you were given the plans, go execute. And yes. after Service New South Wales, I was used to coming up with the ideas and really having a voice at the table. And I think, you know, unfortunately, and it may have changed now, but being part of Southeast Asia and that remit, we just didn't have probably as huge a footprint in terms of that leadership space. Because they can't, they, they think our market's small compared yeah, to what we used to. And it was back yeah. then. So yeah. everything was sort of, we've just done this in the US. Here you go, go yeah. and do it. And after a while I went, oh, I'd like to do this. Or I don't know, I, I just probably didn't find what I was looking for, which was a bit disheartening because yeah. I really thought it was going to be you know, I would stay with Apple. I was waxing lyrical. If you knew me at the time, I had every Apple gadget. I was <laughs> because they were really at the forefront at one stage, weren't they? They, they were incredibly oh, innovative. They were yeah. everywhere. Um, and I, yeah, it was interesting. I think halfway through, I went, whilst it's Apple and this is such a great opportunity, I actually am not loving this as much as I thought. Yeah. Um, which is sometimes, and I think it was the first time ever in my career that I'd had that recollection and I almost felt like, oh, maybe I had made the wrong move. Yeah. Um, so, look, I thought I'd see out at least a year because I was conscious of how that would look on my CV and also not wanting to disappoint the people who believed in me and the network. 
but I decided that I wanted something else. And then I came back to again, what do I do next? Like it's hard because I didn't really have this plan and I'd done sort of random things that I'd enjoyed. Um, and again, I'm, I'm scrolling through and I think it was Seek back then and this opportunity at Qantas came up and I've always loved to travel. And I think, you know, since my cruise ship days, I think I'd visited over a hundred countries then and every opportunity I had, I would travel. So I applied and I remember sitting in a room, there were quite a few, you know, a couple of hundred applicants and it was a full day of exercises and you'd be judged and I didn't know how it would go. Um, but yeah, I ended up securing a role as ground operations manager and sort of grew that into a regional ground ops manager role. Um, and that was responsible for sort of all your baggage handlers, your ramp assistants, your customer service teams. Um, and it ended up being a phenomenal career. Uh, one of the great benefits with Qantas is, you know, you obviously get staff travel. So I was able to do a lot of travel all around the world, um, but also an opportunity to really reshape the culture at Qantas and to find we had a lot of sort of blue collar staff. And I don't say that derogatorily. I mean, there are amazing people, but- Incredibly vital. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but very different. You know, I remember yeah. my first day at Qantas and I don't know if I should say this, but I will. And they went, oh, you, you've come from Apple. And one of the, you know, the baggage handlers showing me the iPad and there's a girl bent over and we'll leave it there in the bikini. <laughs> he went, oh, I probably shouldn't have showed you that. Went, you probably shouldn't. And <laughs> that was my welcome to Qantas. <laughs> so culturally, it, it felt meaningful. We changed yeah. that culture. And, you know, I was the only woman there. It was all very heavily male dominated. Um, but again, it was opening their eyes to different possibilities. We got a lot more women working out because guess what? Women can lift bags too. Yeah. Women can, yeah. <laughs> you know, actually manage the ramps. You know, it, our women tended to be very customer service front desk based. So we sort of flipped that, changed it up a bit. Um, and we got great results. We saw the customer satisfaction results improve, on-time performance improve. And again, I was very cognizant. I wasn't curing cancer, but it felt meaningful. And I've realized for me, whatever I'm doing, I've got to feel like I'm adding value. And yeah. I loved Qantas. And to be honest, I could have stayed forever. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. Unfortunately, COVID then occurred. Uh -huh. um, okay. So pandemic happens and, you know, we had planes grounded. In fact, at one point we had no planes flying, wow. I think, at all. Yeah. Um, I had all my team stood down thousands of people and that would have been so hard horrendous yeah um and then my role became to make everyone redundant they ended up oh. outsourcing those roles so i would literally all day every day be on the phone be on a, a team's call with people who had been there 30 40 years oh. and i it was horrible you know yeah. i um we had a couple of staff unfortunately who didn't cope well and suicidal i won't go into some of that um, but at the end of that experience, Qantas had always been great to me and th there was still a role for me, but I think it, I, again, being very values driven, yeah. I couldn't have stayed knowing that my entire team had been forced to go. Yes. Um, and I think also the uncertainty of the pandemic and what would happen sort of made me reevaluate what was important and realizing that, oh, job's not secure. And if that job is not secure, what does that mean for my lifestyle? At the time, I, um, you know, I, I had a 
then I think it was about two, um, but thinking about my family and that made me probably reassess. So again, I then went, what do I do? Can we just go back a little bit and unpack Mm. that moment where you were making people redundant? Now, it's horrible for the person being made redundant, but I think sometimes people don't realise how hard it is for the person giving that news as well um, because they've still got a a role. They they kind of think, oh, they're okay because they've still got a job. But it is a really hard thing to do. How did you cope with that at the time did you have some sort of coping mechanisms you used or did you lean on people to handle that for you how did you do that yeah look we were given you know uh, EAPs employee assistants that we could talk to we could talk to each other because there were other business units doing it but to be honest nothing really prepares you the amount of days in all honesty I would go home like I'd be hysterical yeah. in the car because you'd know that there were certain roles they were very niche to the airline industry and this was happening across aviation so you knew that this was the end of someone's career they yeah. were very unlikely to get another job and unfortunately what transpired was you know you'd have very experienced people packing shelves at Woolworths yes um you know some people were able to gain you know good employment and again not taking away from anyone who does that at Woolworths but Given that these people had these skills, you'd see engineers. Um, in the end, we had pilots doing the same. Wow. I mean, it was a really strange time and yeah. I, I did, I struggled. I'd be lying. I think it it definitely kept me up at night. And as I say, I had a couple of staff who were suicidal. There were attempts on their lives and very, very difficult. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I think mentally, if I'm honest, I did struggle. And, look, I have an amazing supportive husband, great friends and family who I was able to talk to. But even still, I think until you experience that and you're in it, yes. it's very hard to understand. And just the dread. You know, I used to drive into Qantas, music blasting, just loving life, loving my job. And there yeah. are so many great people who, you know, have gone through that process. They're still there doing great work. And I think, you know, very fondly for the most part of my time there. But that all changed when yeah. that happened. I remember I'd just go in and I'd feel sick. I'd have yeah. this anxiety. Yeah. You know, and all you can do is, you know, sort of separate yourself, understand the situation and support those people. And what I would do is it wouldn't just be your redundant goodbye. It was constant check-ins, looking at seek indeed, flicking them roles, being a reference, trying to go, you know, over and above whatever you could do to serve them. And in many situations, you know, I'm proud to say we were able to find other people meaningful work, not always. Yeah. That kind of helped me live with myself a bit more. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So after Qantas, what happened then? So I'm looking, what do I do? Um, I thought back to where I was happiest prior to Qantas and it was government. It was Service New South Wales. Um, And there wasn't a lot happening there at that point in terms of roles. Apart from Um, the big queue outside. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And and obviously the market was actually really tight then because a lot of people were looking at the same thing, right? There were a lot of people laid off at that time. Um, And so I I looked at Transport for New South Wales. There was actually a role in the Rail Ops Centre in Alexandria. and Okay, just before we we go into that, I mean – You've done carnival cruises. You've done, I knew you did Westfield for a while as well, right? I did, you've yes. done Harrods. You've done Service in South Wales. You've done Apple. You've done Qantas. What makes you as a woman go, oh, look, there's a, there's a position in train ops? I'll just go into that. 
What what makes you do that? What 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 where do you get that confidence from to do that? Yeah, look, I think I'd sort of done transport a bit, you know, I kind of went, oh, airplanes, trains, I know that's a bit weird. And I thought it's government. And I wasn't probably too caught up in the actual role because I think when you're in leadership, it's about inspiring your people and engaging your people. So Sometimes I don't necessarily look at the role per se. Again, I look at where I can add value and I was probably more focused on that. Um, But I've also learnt to back myself. And sorry, you know, I skipped over Westfield. We could probably unpack that because that was actually another chunk before Services South Wales. Sorry, I got a little bit caught up there. Um, But I look at, you know, often the roles I've had, you know, would a male not apply because he didn't have the confidence or no way, they just put themselves there they throw their hat in and even if they don't have the skills and I've got many male colleagues who do that and for a number of years and I will probably throw in Westfield very quickly and I hope I'm not confusing the listeners but I remember I was a shopping centre manager at Westfield an assistant shopping centre manager had a couple of stints in the shopping centre manager role too but there was a development happening in one of the centres and at the time it was going to be a lot more work you know working at 2am in the morning I went, oh, I should negotiate my salary, but oh, I feel a bit awkward. I never asked. And I remember speaking to some of my team a couple of months down the track, they had all negotiated their salaries, renegotiated yeah. $50,000, $70,000 more. Wow. And then I went and had the conversation post and was told, oh, look, all we could do at this point is an extra $3,000. I then left Westfield. But that was a good lesson. Coming back to what you've asked me is, I've learned to back myself, you yeah. know. You don't ask, you don't get. You don't try, you don't get. What is the worst that can happen? Someone says no. And I find often in speaking to women, both colleagues, people, you know, within my team, for some reason there's this this fear to ask the question, to put ourselves out there. And I don't know where that is driven from. And I hope today, if we unpack this a bit more, we can give some advice to our listeners to actually say to them, back yourself, trust in yourself, because what's the worst that can happen? Yeah, you know? exactly. And, and this is a good example. I put myself out for that role. I was unsuccessful. I made it to the, the top three. And the person who got the role actually had experience in rail operations. I did not, so it wasn't a great surprise. But the recruiter said to me, look, they were really happy with your interview and there's some other director roles coming up. Would you be interested? And I went, well, yeah, I, I would please, you know, keep me on file. And I kept in touch with that recruiter. I didn't hold out great hope. And I must admit, I sort of thought, oh, that's probably just lip service to make me feel better. Yep. But funny enough, I think it was sort of six, seven weeks later, I get a call. Nicole, we've got this role. It's in Maritime. And... Um, it's also Wollongong based. You said you were based in Wollongong. Would you be interested? And I went, well, maritime. I haven't really had a lot to do with, you know, the boating industry and and sort of again that doubt crept in. But I went, yeah, why not? Send me the the job description. And I had a look. They went, oh look, it's closing today. So if you want to apply, you need to have your application in by five o'clock. And I went, what have I got to lose? So I did a bit of re- I put my application in. I did a bit of research. Two days later. I interviewed for my current role and again it was COVID so it was all on teams and I remember actually quite an awkward interview because halfway through there was a delivery man and he was very persistent. He knew I was home and he's <laughs> buzz, buzz and I'm thinking, oh God, and I'm like, sorry, excuse myself from the interview. Um, but yeah, taking that gamble has, has paid off and 
interestingly enough, it was, you know, a few months of, of interviews before they decided on the candidate. And two weeks after the first interview, I discovered I was pregnant with my second child. Wow. So, and which was exciting, but also I went, oh, this is a bit awkward. And, yeah. you know, how do I navigate this? Because all the interviews are on Teams. Like, do I just kind of get up at some point and show I've got a bit of a bump? Like, <laughs> and then I went to, I don't want to be discriminated against. And I had faith that I wouldn't be. Yeah. But I just didn't intrinsically trust that maybe I wouldn't be looked over. So I went through that process. Fortunately, I was offered the role and then went, well, I can't accept because I want to have integrity here. I need to be honest. And so I remember I was so nervous. And at the time I was living in a townhouse in lockdown with a two-year-old. Yeah, <laughs> which is I'm, challenging in itself. I'm hiding in my walk-in closet and yes. I've got notes written on the laptop around <laughs> how I'm going to tell them I'm pregnant. <laughs> it was quite the comedy act. And I'm sweating and I, you know, I'm look, I really want to accept the role, but there's something I need to tell you. I'm actually, and by this point, I think I was six months pregnant and I have to, you know, call out my executive director, Mark Hutchings at the time. He went, oh, brilliant. That's great. Well, not an issue. And he just continued to talk about the role. It wasn't even a blip on his radar. Yeah. Afterwards, he sent me this amazing email around, you know, how supportive he is of of women and, and all of this stuff. And I, again, I kind of went, wow, like, is this for real? And two years later, I can tell you, he absolutely was for real. The experience has been phenomenal. So I took the role, had 14, uh, yeah, I think 14 weeks in role and then took three months maternity leave, which again was interesting during lockdown and then uh, came back into the role. I decided purposely to have a shorter maternity leave because again, I I wanted to do the right thing by the organization. And also being in lockdown, I I felt it was manageable. That's another story. That was probably one of the hardest (laughs) periods of my life. But um, you know, the gamble paid off and it's interesting. I didn't have a boating background, but the work we are doing is so meaningful. It is it's very life-saving. It's very, literally life-saving, yeah. And I love it and it was the yeah. best move. And now I can see a path forward. You know how it's almost I'm 40 now, 41 yes. this year. God, I hate to say that out loud. No, um, don't worry, babes. <laughs> it gets better. But 40s is actually your best, I reckon. Do you reckon? Oh, Excellent. so good. Okay, that's it's great so good. to hear. Yeah. I must admit I wouldn't want to go back. Every yeah. year I think it just does. It gets better and you have that level of confidence um, but I can see, you know, I could see myself staying in maritime, in transport, being executive director, going on to be a deputy secretary and then a secretary. I've even thought about at one point, it's a bit ludicrous, but going into politics, I feel so inspired. I feel like I've finally found my place. It's interesting. That's amazing. Yeah. I have to say um, you have a great leader. Mark Hutchins is a, an incredible guy. Um And I think he instills a behaviour in his team that is a little bit different to the norm of a government agency. Like you messaged me last night at 8 o'clock to confirm our podcast today. The government agency workers don't normally do that, right? So I know that's a bit of a generalisation, but... But I think Mark is is he's got so much passion and he's so driven and he's so he's very sensible as well. He's very considered. Um, uh, yeah, we've we Darren and I have been lucky to, have to spend some time with Mark and and um, he is a, a brilliant leader. And I think we work 
with leaders that we really respect and I can see that in you, that you respect him. I even had a girl stay. We have a, I have another business called Venus Getaways, which is a girls' getaways business up in the Blue Mountains. Oh, we need to talk about this. We need to offline. talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> and we had a group of girls stay just before Christmas. And I ended up being their butler because both of my butlers were, you know, <laughs> off with COVID or whatever, you know, whatever was going on yeah. at the time. So, um, and one of the girls there um, was in telecommunications for emergency services. She was the one that was deploying the helicopter to to go and fix the, the you know, the, the, the pole thing in the middle of the country because of the floods they couldn't get, you know, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, and she was there supposedly on a weekend away, but she was continu- continuously working even though she was on a, a leave day. And I thought, that, again, I thought that's not normal government agency <laughs> behaviour. And and I said, so what do you, I said, your, your job's, I just heard the conversation she was having on the phone, yeah. you know, I said, your job sounds amazing. What, what, what do you do? And she, she explained what she did. And then I said, oh, do you work with Mark? And she said, I do. <laughs> I said, oh, okay, there we go. There's another, <laughs> you know, another. And and he obviously su- su- really supports women in their roles. 100%. If I can, yeah, look, if I can jump in there, I have to say he has anything I've sort of said I've wanted to do. He backs you. He listens. He really promulgates women. I mean, 50% of our leadership team is women. He doesn't do that to take a quota. He actually believes in equality. He wants us to have equal say. He's driven a number of programs throughout Maritime to encourage women to join, to kind of break down that stigma that it's really blokey industry. Um, And for me personally, you know, coming into a director role, six months pregnant, uh, and then, you know, restarting with a tiny newborn during COVID, I remember we'd be doing budget estimates to parliament and I'm having, I'm on teams and I'm having to give information. I've got a screaming baby and, you know, my husband kind of passing him under the table and I just pull a boob out and I'm, <laughs> yep, blah, 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 reciting, you know, and afterwards joking to Mark about that and him being like, oh, you know, if you can't do it or if you, you know, if you ever need to take time out or delegate, that's okay. And just allowing me the space and the flexibility. And you know what? I made it work because he's always given me so much flexibility and backed me. I've wanted to work 10 times harder. And I can tell you right now, I would do anything for him and for Mm. Maritime, whether that is on a weekend, after hours, I will make it work because he and our organization makes it work for us. And it's amazing. I think it's finding, and I would say this to women listening today, it's so important that you find your mark. You yes. find an organisation that will support you because people say, can you have it all? And, wow, you've got, you know, sort of two young kids and how do you do it? You know how I do it? I have an amazing network. I have an amazing boss who allows me to do it. Also marry well. Yeah. <laughs> Having an amazing husband, family, um, it really does help. But I think times have changed. You know, yes. we have flexibility. We're not tied to an office nine to five. Um there's good and bad because to your point, sometimes that means, you know, there is that expectation that you will jump onto things a little bit earlier or later. In our situations, you know, we look after flood response. There are emergencies. Unfortunately, there are fatalities and those things don't happen nine to five. You know, they typically happen on a Saturday morning when I've got the four-year-old at swimming lessons and I'm, I'm wrangling. 
but it's amazing what you can do. And I think, you know, again, we've got to stop putting limits on ourselves because no one else is. I think the yeah. people who put limits on themselves the most are actually you and I. It's the listeners on the call. We do it to ourselves. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And and I think that point that you make there of surrounding ourselves with uh, men that support us, I think, um, you know, some women in their drive to get more women into their industry or, or whatever I, I take a little bit of a man-hating approach and I I don't think that's the right approach. We need to recognise that we need men helping us, supporting us, pushing us, putting us into positions we didn't think we could do but they think we can. Um, I think the men in our world um, are really, really important for that. I certainly wouldn't be here in the position I am in and doing what I'm doing without the men I have around me, um, my husband, my dad, my uh, people I've worked with, my marina director. There's so many men that have helped me become who I am. Um, and I think we need to recognise that and I think we need to be grateful to them for, for being that, you know, because there's some men that aren't and yeah. they need to teach those other men to be like them. So... Could not agree more, Nikki. I think yeah. you really just hit the nail on the head with that. And I hope, you know, in the two boys I'm raising, I want to raise them to support women and to understand the challenges, you know, that unfortunately it still isn't equal. You only have to look at, and we won't get into it, but, you yeah. know, the gender pay differences and, and different things going on. And also, you know, representation, I'm lucky. I work for an organisation where we do have equal representation, but I'm not naive enough to think that is the case across the board. It certainly isn't. So I think as women, it's absolutely recognising those men in our lives, celebrating those men, encouraging that, but also where we can, you know, teaching. If you've got boys, if you have girls, having these conversations at a young age too so they grow up to support women. You know, I know of friends who are, you know, it's, you'll laugh at this maybe, but, they're teaching their little boys around, you know, what periods are at a young age and if a girl, this happens, give her a tampon. Yeah. Do this and because they don't ever want, um, you know, a girl to be in a situation where she's embarrassed in class. They want to raise the kind of men that bring women up and I think, wow, because, I, you know, I don't know that when I was in school that was happening. I remember if, God forbid, you know, a girl had an accident or, you know, the boys would all laugh or they'd throw around the tampons if they found it. I think... Times are changing and I love hearing these kind of conversations because I think it's not just in the workplace where we can have this change, it's at home as well. I agree. Parents, I think parents of boys, women, the parents of boys um, have a kind of a responsibility to handle that. Um, I have two boys too. Ah. So, um, and they're, but they're a lot older than yours. <laughs> <laughs> Let me know what stage it gets easier. We can talk about that <laughs> but uh, I have to say I'm I mean my two boys are my world and they're, they're I'm so incredibly proud of those human beings but my youngest is in a very good relationship with his girlfriend and she said a beautiful thing to me the other day she said um, I have learnt by being with Liam that I can be treated well Wow! and I thought wow that's mind-blowingly good for me because that was part of my role to make him be like that but I always say that um, kids don't uh, do what you do do what you say they do what you do and I've always worked and been um, part of the earning strategy of our family and I've always worked hard um, I was lucky enough to spend a lot of my time with them as small children but still doing something that you know could work around yeah. that 
and then my husband treats me in a certain way and they see that. He's always treated me as a princess, right? That's why the boat princess came back. <laughs> so um, he, yeah, them seeing that is an understanding of, oh, okay, that's how we treat women. Yeah, absolutely. And you how know? impactful is that? Yeah. You know, and I think it, it goes full circle because now they're treating women that way, yeah. you know. So I think, yeah, it's it's a really worthwhile conversation and I know I love where we're at right now. I think there's a lot of opportunity, don't get me wrong, but when I look back of sort of where we've come from, going into the future, I'm so excited for the women who are coming up, the, the women who are in school now and the opportunities they're going to be afforded and the support they're going to have. Yeah, you know? yeah, it's awesome. I love seeing it. Yeah, mm, it's so same. good. So you're doing an exceptionally good job on this podcast. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I know you've been thrown into the media spotlight a bit more than maybe you have been in your past career recently. Yes. Yeah, because <laughs> you did a presentation to the Boating Industry Association. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how I said, oh, I've got to talk to her. <laughs> um, and then you were on 2SM um, and then Channel 9 threw a, a, a a moment at you. How was that for you? Tell us about that experience. Look, the Channel 9 one was probably the highlight or low light, depending on which way you want to look at it. That was a live interview. And, um, you know, I don't know how many of your listeners have had that experience, but I, you know, I had the questions literally a second before they went, oh, we're kind of going to ask you this, boom. And uh, they wanted to line me up with the screen so it, you know, presented well aesthetically so that I'm balanced on three boxes. I'm in six inch heels. If I move an inch to the left, all right, I'm going to topple over. I'm dripping with sweat. Um, and then it's go and you've got someone in your ear asking all the questions. Um, look, very, very nerve wracking. But again, what an opportunity. And I will never say no to SM. You know, these things are never easy and you're always nervous around what you're going to be asked, if you're going to be asked something contentious. Working for government, you know, things can be political and there yep. are things you can't really talk about versus things you can and and wanting to make sure, um, you know, you're, you're really selling your agency right but being truthful and I guess, um, you know, as transparent as possible. But it's a lot going on in your mind when you're answering those questions. Absolutely. Um, and as uncomfortable as I'll never say no because we have this role to play particularly in maritime where we can, you know, my job is education. Yeah, we, we do compliance. So we're out on the waterways making sure that people are following the rules and the handbook. Um, but ultimately we want to educate. We don't want to get to a serious incident. We won't want to give infringements. We want to encourage everyone to follow the rules and be safe. You know, since summer, October, sorry, the start of the boating season, we've had over 120 incidents. We've had a number of fatalities. It's absolutely devastating. Yeah. And more often than not, when we look at the incidents, it's simple things. They don't have a life jacket. They haven't checked the conditions. They're not familiar with the local area or the waterway, the changes that have occurred. So when I get a media opportunity, as much as I go, oh, I don't want to do it. I don't want to drive into Sydney. It's not about me. I kind of flip it and go, who can I get? And if I can save one life, if I can prevent one incident because someone hears that message, then it is so worthwhile. It's worthwhile me potentially looking like an idiot for 15 minutes. So I guess that's my take on it. And I've really been putting myself out there for these um, opportunities. And yeah, it's been radio. Um, as you say, we had the Channel 9 interview. 
prior to that, I, I do a lot of local media as well. And for the most part, it, it's overwhelmingly positive. And when it, it isn't, it gives yourself a good, you know, opportunity to have a laugh at yourself. And, you know, my <laughs> friends have a good laugh. <laughs> That's happened occasionally. But, yeah, I think it, it comes back to some of my earlier messaging, Nikki, around we just have to put ourselves Just out believe there. in yourself a bit. You know, because yeah. had I not, you know, even the voting industry presentation, I'll be honest, I thought – Oh, it's going to be a bunch of guys. And it was. I think there and was they really know their what, stuff two other women there. Yep. And yep. you're getting up and it, it's yep. nerve wracking. And I don't have a maritime background. So I'm almost two years enrolled, 20 months to be precise. Um, and some of this stuff I'm still learning because, yes. again, my role is really around that leadership, cultural change, engagement. Um, I've got experts within my team who know the technical aspects. Uh, so I'm still learning. And you think, oh, what curly question could I be asked? But when you put yourself out there, for the most part, people are respectful. If you don't know a question, you can always take it on notice. A little bit harder to do on live TV, but yes. it's certainly easier in a presentation. Yeah. Um, but people generally are kind. The, the interviews go well. And as I say, the odd occasion, if it doesn't, it's a good opportunity to reflect and laugh. But I'm so pleased I've done it. I wouldn't have met you. Otherwise, yeah. I wouldn't have had this opportunity. And I think the more you say yes, the more opportunities you get, the more you grow as a person. And each and every time I learn something about myself. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Putting ourselves out there can be scary, but um, I mean, I know doing this podcast, I've learned so much um, about myself as well as the people I've interviewed. Yeah. And it's, um, it's fascinating to um, see yourself grow when you have to do something that is a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah, so, yeah. And you don't grow, I think, if you don't put yourself in those situations. Yeah. You know, um, you can't expect to do the same every single day and see a change yeah. or see that career growth. So, yeah, it, whatever you're doing, I think it's good to be in that uncomfortable space. You don't want to be too uncomfortable, but it's all right to be a little bit on edge. And I yeah. think I, I quite enjoy it. It feels weird saying that out loud, but I think I do. <laughs> I kind of thrive on the energy that that, that brings and definitely the opportunities that come from it. Yeah, yeah. So I did a little video um, the other day on my boat. I was driving the boat because we went out. We actually went out of the heads. It was a bit of a bit of a moment. Yeah. Because <laughs> not a lot of Aussies do necessarily go out of the heads. So um, we went out the out of the heads up to um, you know Pittwater, Broken Bay, all that area. Yep. And uh, I did message in that you know talking. Okay, I have checked the weather extensively yes. before I have left on this trip. Because we literally kept an eye on it for a week before and it would change slightly. And, we'd go, blah, blah. and, and there's so many brilliant apps for doing that now. Yep. You know, there's um, there's Decky and there's, I think it's called Willy, which is, yep. yeah. Yep. And there's the bomb, of course, and which are, are we allowed to call it the bomb now? Yeah. I can't remember. Yep. And <laughs> Bureau of <laughs> Meteorology, in case anyone is unsure. Bureau of Meteorology. <laughs> and, um, and, yeah, there's so many good ones out there to to use before we go boating um you've got a specific message that you're really pushing at the moment in maritime can you to unpack that for me yeah look i'd love to and it really is the three p's so plan prepare predict and it's exactly what you just said you know plan for the trip keep an eye on the weather leading up to it um you know make sure you're familiar and make sure that it's great to be committed and have a plan but make sure that you are willing to step out of that plan if the weather doesn't support it. 
you know, in a number of our incidents and unfortunately fatalities, we see people commit. And even though the weather is bad, some they either don't check or they check and go, oh, but I've committed, I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. Please don't. You know, if you're in doubt or you're not confident with those weather conditions, don't go out. Um, the other thing is preparing and it sounds so simplistic, but have working life jackets on board that are serviced and up to date. Make sure all your safety equipment is in good working order. Really simple things, but again, in a number of the incidents we're seeing, people don't have a life jacket. They don't have the necessary safety equipment. And the same goes for your boat. You know, over COVID, we've seen a lot of people come into the industry a lot more users on our waterways now. So, you know, I think we've got 500,000 licensed users. I think there's about 2 million uh, watercraft now in New South Wales alone. So phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of people going, oh, I'm just going to buy a boat. They don't really have <laughs> the background, the knowledge. They might not even have, you know, um, I guess the experience to know what to check. So I would recommend purchasing a boat once you've got a boat, really understanding how that boat works and, and what working good working condition means. Um, because again, some of the, the boats we're seeing out there and the watercraft, they're just not in good condition. And if you unfortunately do have an incident, it's not going to give you the protection that you need. Um, and finally, just you know, predicting as much as possible. So it comes back to predicting the weather, knowing the waterways. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of holiday, um, you know, people who go out once a year, maybe they go to Tweed Heads or down the South Coast and it's a holiday spot. And they think they know that waterway because perhaps they've been going 20, 30 years. But you know what, with the inclement weather we've seen, the recent yeah. floods, there are debris in areas that we've never seen debris before and um, silt changing depths of waterways absolutely all sorts of there's silt yeah. the sand build up it's just not the same so yeah. as much as possible you really need to prepare have a look at what those waterways are looking like in this current condition have a chat to locals in the area before you go out check you know are there any bars are there any things that maybe i haven't come across before that i'm going to come across today and prepare for that so it's again plan prepare and as much as you can predict before you go out because you know I would say eight out of ten times maybe even nine out of ten times the fatalities the incidents we're seeing they could have been preventable um, and it's these simple things that just aren't happening and I get it you know we're confident we think we know the waterways mm. but they're not the same you know we go oh the life jacket's fine but that life jacket if you haven't been out in a year takes you two minutes, not even, to check and make sure it's in working condition. Yeah, yeah, I know myself. Things. I um, our, I mean, we've got a big boat. She's 58 feet. So uh, our life jackets are in a nice little cupboard down in the, in the bedroom, keep it, you know, nice and yeah. tidy. But I got two out and had them very available to us yeah, should excellent. we need them for that trip. Um, we also registered in with Maritime. There's a fantastic app, isn't there? Yes. That if you're going outside the heads, you say, I am travelling from here to here. Um, and then they know that, oh, they haven't got to where they should have got to by this time. We need to investigate what's happened there. So because because you, you check in when you're leaving, mm -hmm. you check in when you get to your destination. If you haven't reached your destination, they then know something may have gone wrong with that boat we need to maybe go and look for them. 
Um, so, yeah, I think that's a fantastic system. And, again, it's just an extra precaution. It's no different to sort of smart traveller. You know, yeah. if you're going overseas, you register. I think, you know, that's a really good point. And similarly, I love that you actually got the life jackets out because potentially might not be as helpful in the cupboard or it, it's it's really simple stuff. But again, it could just save your life. Yeah. You know, we had a boat capsize last week and thankfully two young children, parents, all in life jackets, all saved, all happy and healthy. Um, that could have been a very, very, very different, different outcome. In fact, yeah. I can guarantee you it would have been a different outcome and a very tragic one at that. So. Yeah. I think, you know, it's just not overestimating or underestimating more to the point, the conditions, your level of confidence with the waterways um, and just taking a few precautions. At the end of the day, we want everyone to enjoy it. We are so fortunate to live where we live, you know, have these amazing waterways and thankfully I'll touch wood, but we had a great summer and let's hope the sunshine continues. Um, but a few precautions is all it takes to make sure you can enjoy it safely and you can continue to enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's, you know, that's some really simple safety messages I'd like to get out there for boating. Um, I do a little safety, when I've got a group of people on my boat, um, I do a little safety briefing before we go out. Yeah. Um, and it's just simple things like this is where the life jackets are. If something happens, listen to what the captain says or listen, if that's me, that's me. Um, and also, you know, three points of your body onto the boat holding on at all times when you're walking around. So, it's two feet, one hand usually. Um, and just those simple messages, for, especially with people that have never been on a boat before, they'll make a, a certain assumption that they're going to be okay, but they may not know that you might hit a wave at any point. And, and if you're not holding on with those three points, that could be a bit ugly. You could just fall over really nastily and, and then you're in a, a really different situation. Um, and the other message I really want to get across is babies. Yes. So many people yeah. take their babies on a boat um, and um, they'll have them in their arms so they assume that they're okay but uh, and they don't have a life jacket on them. Please, please, please go and get a correct size life jacket for that baby and put that baby in a life jacket the whole time they are on that boat because they sink like stones. Absolutely. You know? And you wouldn't put a baby in a car without a car seat and all buckled in and industry approved. You know, I think that is such a very valid point. It, it's madness that people, and, you know, I don't want to be disrespectful, but that they think that's okay. Yes. You know, and it's just that education piece because we all, you know, we hope that we're going to go out and have a great time and return safely. But it's, again, that preparation piece. It's so important. If you prepare for the worst, hopefully you'll have, you know, the best will occur and it'll be fine. But it's, we're just not seeing that preparation. And I have to be honest, there are times where, you know, certain incidents, I want to pull my hair out because you think, what is not getting through? Yeah. We are trying to, we have a, you know, in our business plan, we want zero fatalities. We're trying to work hard towards zero fatalities. Um, and we've got boating safety officers out 365 days a year doing compliance. Similarly, we've got boating safety education officers. I don't know if you know this, Nikki, but we we go into schools. We're now embarking on a virtual reality program where we can teach uh, local kids how to navigate local waterways as they get their boat license. I mean, we're investing heavily in all of this, but none of it is worthwhile if people don't actually listen and, and take that messaging on board. And it, it, it's sad when sometimes I feel it, 
it perhaps is falling on deaf ears or people are hearing it but just not putting it into action. So we will continue to do everything we can. It's our job. Yeah, you know, I'm sure it's coming across. We are so, so passionate about people enjoying the waterways safely. But we really need people to, to take on notice what we're saying and, and to really apply it because, you know, one fatality is too many. One incident Sorry. is too many. And the numbers we are seeing, it's just not good enough. And we want people to be safe. Yeah, absolutely. So on that note, we'll do a couple of questions just to finish up. Sure. What excites you the most about being in the boating industry? Look, I would probably say it's an exciting industry, isn't it, anyway? Mm. I think there are so many components of it. But I would probably say I just love how it brings people together. Boating in general, you know, we weren't a huge boating family, but my recollections of being out in the water is always being with family and friends. You know, there are no barriers ultimately. And yeah, I know it can be expensive to own a boat, but whether it's a tinny, I just think it's such a great experience. And I feel excited to be able to shape and encourage people to do that again in a safe way and to promote it as yeah. well. I think that's the benefit of living in Australia. We have all these incredible waterways, perfect, beautiful settings. I'm just excited to be a part of that, to help people to be able to enjoy it safely. I think it's such a, a privileged position to be in, you know, and if we can get more people out there and enjoy, even going into schools, I'm really passionate about the education piece too and entice people to do it. I'm hoping today's podcast may just resonate with some of your listeners to want to get into the industry there's always something new happening. There's some great technology, you know, technology. There's lots of advancements. Um, but ultimately, it brings people together. It allows people to enjoy the best of Australia, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I really enjoy it. Love that. Love that. So thank you so much for being with us here, Nicole. Really appreciate your time. I know you're a busy girl. So it's great to have you on the podcast. Just one little message to those women out there that may be considering coming in and into our industry. What would you say to them? Look, so firstly, Nikki, thank you so much for having me today. It's been my absolute pleasure and I'll be happy to chat to you anytime. Um, for those women, you know, considering a career in this industry, I would just say to them, you know, two words or three words, go for it. You know, don't put limits on yourself. Um, and, you know, any preconceptions you may have, I can almost guarantee it is not the case. You know, we are finding, uh, you know, it's a very welcoming industry. Both men and women are very, very welcoming. Uh, we've got more and more women every day entering the industry and for the better. They're bringing some great skill, experience, adding a different lens. So I would just say, go for it and, and reach out. You know, if you've got any questions around how to get involved, by all means, you know, look me up. I'm more than happy to have those conversations as well because we want to encourage women in this industry uh, to grow and, and be a part of it. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Nicole. Really appreciate it. And uh, I hope our listeners have enjoyed that podcast. And I shall see you on the water soon. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Boat Princess 
podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. And if you'd like to know more about what I do and where I am, then you can follow me on Instagram at The Boat Princess. You can also sign up to my newsletter on my website, which is theboatprincess.com. Take care of yourselves, everyone, and hopefully we'll see you on the water soon.